This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Today, we are talking to John Micklethwaite, one of the two authors of the new book, The Fourth Revolution, subtitled The Global Race to Reinvent the State. John, your co-author, Adrian Woolridge, is not with us today, but you, you and Woolridge uh, have written many books over the last few years about the progress of American political ideas, most famously, God is Right, or God is Back and the Right Nation. It's a good way to mix them up. <laughs> you, you, you are the former editor of a distinguished English magazine, The Economist, and now the editor of Bloomberg News. And you, your book is extremely timely because you are talking about the need to re-engineer the machinery of government, you know, not only in the United States, but also in many other parts of the world, in, in Europe as, as well as in Asia, in order to confront and make sense out of the circumstances presented to us by the 21st century. And you start by saying, among other things, that the uh, machinery of government is, is dysfunctional in Washington, and the evidence has never been more apparent than with the advent of the Trump administration. So first mention the problem that, that we confront at the moment in Washington as in elsewhere in the world, and then go back briefly to the, explain why it is a fourth revolution and what were the first three revolutions. Well, maybe to start with the sort of simple, the easiest one to put forward, which I think pretty much everyone listening to this would agree with, is that government doesn't work particularly well. It certainly right. doesn't work very well if you put it alongside um, the way that business has changed so dramatically. Um, you know, virtually everything we do with business works pretty well. It doesn't, we've had crashes, but all the same, you know, the basic fact of what business delivers to you on a, on a regular basis has got more efficient and better. Government has not moved. And the good news that we carry in this book is this is actually part of what has happened throughout history. There has been long periods where government has sort of been somewhat static and then huge revolutions have swept through it and the first revolution we point out was you know a, a long time ago when thomas hobbes wrote leviathan this book about the state and back then and this is an interesting part of the history of the state the state has always been in competition with other places it tends to jump forward when technology is there when the will to change it is there and particularly when there's competition with other places and years ago back in 16th century Europe, the idea that Europe would be the future of government seemed completely mad. China was so far ahead on virtually every form. What happened, though, is that the, the, the 
nation states of Europe began to change. They began to come up with ways to make government much better. And they did that largely in competition. And that was the first revolution. I should point out for the uh, listeners that we are talking about revolution in the West. Yes. We are not talking about, for the purposes of this uh, book and discussion about what's going on in Asia and China and Islam. Exactly. Not not back then. Back then, back then, actually, China felt it was so far ahead. That, that, uh, just as a statistic, and I hope I've got this right, I think 400,000 people worked inside the imperial city of Beijing within the emperor's bureaucracy. By contrast, only, I think, three European cities in total had as many people as that, London, Naples, and Paris. By any measure, the kind of level of government, the sophistication of it, in China and arguably in the Islamic world was far ahead. What happened in Europe was this desperate competition between nation states forced people to make government much better. That created the first revolution. You then have this amazing liberal revolution in the in the um, in the 18th and 19th century, where liberals and by liberals I don't mean Nancy Pelosi, I mean liberals in the true sense, John Stuart Mill, Adam Smith, those sort of people looked at government and said it's got much better, but it's bloated, it's corrupt. We can strip it down and make it much better. And one of the amazing statistics in this is that in Britain, the liberals there reduced the size of the state by about half, whilst at the same time massively expanding the things it did. They brought in schools, prisons, police forces, all those things. But they did that by getting rid of all the corrupt things, like the imperial preferences, like the money which went to help the East India Company, all those sort of things. And there's an element, I think, now, if you're going to look back at a revolution and think this is what Washington should be looking at, actually looking back to those people like William Gladstone, John Stuart Mill, these were people who made government better, not because they believed in big government, but because they believed in a, in a, in a, in a smaller, better version. Quite interestingly, all these revolutions are people who take government seriously. So whenever you go to Washington and you hear somebody say, I want, I want no government at all, especially on the Republican side, when people say that, the simple answer is go to the Congo. It's not very nice. You, know, you want government to be of a reasonable size to work, but you want it to work well in a modern way. And when you look at all the institutions we've got at the moment, most of them date back well over 100 years. Even the departments with which America is ruled date back for that. Department of Agriculture, Department of Commerce, all those things go through. It's a very old system. The third revolution was really the big one to do with socialism, to do with the welfare state, which began, I think, fundamentally with sort of Fabian ideas back in, again, back in Britain, actually, at the turn of the last century. And those were the ones which went to an extreme example in the case of Karl Marx. But in most cases, it was about building an ever larger welfare state. And then you have a semi-revolution, a half-revolution, which doesn't really succeed against that, involving Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, where they thought they were stopping the growth of the state. They didn't really. And I think what we're poised at now, you know, we have the need to reinvent the state. That is self-evident. We have, in a sense, the technology. You can look around the world and virtually every bit of government is somewhere being done unbelievably better than it is in America or, for that matter, in Brussels or in in London. And lastly, you know, we, we we, we have the technology to do it. And, and technology matters. Technology is a big and important thing to do. So the chances of reinventing government actually, I think, are strangely quite high. Before we go on, one more brief question by way of background. We, the first of your uh, three revolutions is comes out of Thomas Hobbes following the Treaty of 
Westphalia in 1648 and his book, Leviathan, and that's the sovereign state. And then you attach the second revolution to, as you say, Mill and, and a number of his contemporaries, and the last one to Beatrice and uh, Sidney Webb, Webb toward the end of the 19th century in Victorian Britain. But they all, you have somewhere, you, you, you state very clearly, they all pose the question and pose an answer to the question, what is the state for? So tell me what those three prior revolutions, how do they, what is the state for? It's interesting. The first one, the, the Thomas Hobbes one, was about security. You know, the state was there to provide you with security. There was a, a coalescence between his ideas and the monarchs of the time. What they were saying is, look, before us, you know, there are lots of bits that don't work in Europe. We will define nation states and we will, within the boundaries of that nation state, we will keep you relatively safe. The second revolution, that of John Stuart Mill, was about liberty. It was saying, look, it isn't just enough to do that. We want citizens to be free. We want people to be represented. You, you saw these huge re rebellion revolutions in terms of democracy happening at the same time. And you also had new technology coming in. You, you, it was a big difference, the arrival of the steam engine even. You know, before then, if you wanted to run some northern part of England, you had to send messengers and horseback. So by definition, it made much more sense to let the Duke of... Northumberland, to use one example, run Northumberland, rather than actually having a bureaucracy that went up there, because you might as well trust them. Technology made a difference. The, the last the last one, the, the, the last big revolution back in the beginning of the 19th century was really about equality. It was about trying to make people more equal within it. And that was also driven by the, the, the huge things of mass modernization. It was very much, those ideas came about at the time of modern, but the, what they regarded as modern factories, people like Henry Ford, the idea that you could put lots of things together and government was a machine to help make people equal. Socialism was also there as well. And that's carried on. But some, the, of the, some, some of those ideas that carry over into Teddy Roosevelt and the progressive Yes, era, very much right? so. In, in, in the United States. Very much so. Look at a place like California. You know, California, this place which has turned its over, self over so many times in terms of the machinery of business, you know, look at Silicon Valley, look at what, even the way that Hollywood's changed, it, it's changed dramatically. And yet virtually all the organizations of Californian government go back to that era. So we, we are still living in an era where the, the, the foundation of government is pretty much rooted back in that 19th century. And I think it's time to rethink it. We now have new technology, which poses questions. Some of them are questions which I find quite awkward, like whether um, you allow more versions of electronic voting and things like that. But a lot of it is just about using modern things to provide more. We also know from business that things like competition help. If you if you look at a state, um, we, we use Singapore in this example. A lot of people look at what Singapore does and you compare it to America. By virtually any measure, whatever, if you look at education, health, all these things, Singapore roughly provides twice as good service for half as much money. And immediately Wengen into lots of cliches about this is to do with Asian values. It's not. It's to do with really simple things. If you have teachers, you promote the good ones and you sack the bad ones. And you pay people at the top of the public service good money. The guy who runs um, the Singaporean civil service gets a couple of million dollars. People do that because they think that is a serious good job. You look at something like the Veterans Administration or one of those things which people have always had trouble with in America. You look at the sort of salaries that the people at the top of it get. It's not saying to people, this is, 
this is a serious job that we'd expect you to go backwards and forwards. And we, we've let the civil service mould away in that way. And it's also become a place where ideas aren't recommended. That The big thing I, I would love to get across, though, is that we look at it, we think of Trump, we think of Jared Kushner, now in charge of this great project, from Trump's point of view, to modernise the economy. The, the other big thing which is happening, and I think is happening quietly, but is beginning to push forward, is that just as what happened in the previous revolutions, there is competition. There is now in Asia, you look at what is happening in China, it's, it's an imperfect model, but there is a model of government which has demonstrably helped its citizens do much, much better than they were doing. We can argue with all sorts of things. We can criticize corruption. We can say that the, you know, the finance system has got weaknesses in it. By any measure, however, the Chinese government has been good at delivering a version of prosperity and better services to its people, in part because it's modeled itself on Singapore. And you look at the previous revolutions, a lot of them were driven by competition. To give you one example, the welfare state, we always imagine that's sort of nice, well-meaning socialists. It wasn't. It was also people like Winston Churchill, David Lloyd George, and the reason why, and Roosevelt later, and one reason why they did it was competition. In the British case, especially fear of Germany. You had Germany, which was rising quickly, and you suddenly had people like Winston Churchill, hardly from the liberal left, looked at this and said, help, we need to educate our people. We need universal education. We can't fight the Germans if we've got C-class minds, to use the phrase of David Lloyd George. This, this was a, that sense of competition is there. And I think the longer this current century goes on, the more pressure is going to come on American public institutions to actually try to rethink things because the Chinese have done this. The Chinese have thought about this. They don't see government as a kind of extra thing to come to last. They, they, they used to be the best at government. They let watch the West win. And now they are setting about remorselessly to try and copy the ideas we have. Talk about that uh, organization where yes, the Chinese are trying to raise up an entire class of high-end civil servants. Yeah, the book begins with um, a place called Silap, which is in um, Shanghai, the, in Pudong. And what it, what it is, it's, it, it, they call it locally the cadre training school. And it's a place for um, people who want to be provincial governors, people who become ambassadors, people who are put in charge of state-run companies, things like that. And it is a school orientated totally at the idea of making government better. And you approach it, and it has a bit of barbed wire around the outside, so you think it's a military base. And then you come in, and it looks a bit like Harvard as redesigned by Dr. No, because it's definitely an educational institution, but it has a somewhat sort of strange aspect. In the middle, there's a huge red desk the size of sort of several story buildings, and that's the central bit, and then there are places round. And the interesting thing about talking to the people there, these are the same people who t tried to teach China how to embrace capitalism. And when they did that, they went and looked at Wall Street, they went and looked at the city of London, they looked at Tokyo. They, they, they took a long time trying to work out where the centers of excellence are. Now they're trying to make the Chinese the best at government. And the interesting thing is they don't go to Washington. They certainly don't go to Brussels. They start going to places like Sweden, like Singapore, Norway. They look for individual things that they think people do well. And, and, and it's, it's not a sort of stupid thing. If you have a choice between the Californian or the New York school system, which spends a huge amount of money and produces worse results than people, I think, from Poland, which spends barely a thing, you, you would not go there to learn how to run an education system. And, and most of, when you look at the answers about how to make government better, 
in most cases it involves some degree of slimming and it regards it involves concentration on delivering services to people which tends to militate against the people who produce it at the moment government is more of a producer lobby than anywhere else but and this is quite important you know some some bits of our book we look at it you look at healthcare i think you can make a very strong argument that from an economically rational point of view the system that works best is a single provider one because that america spends more money more public money on health than virtually anywhere else and yet it still doesn't cover anybody hence we got the obama problems yes so i mean you say uh, you say at one point that we have a truly bloated form of, of, of government, but it, it, it's not making people happy. Yeah, I know. That, that, is, that is the irony. I mean, the, 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 you know, if you, again, to, if, if you reduced American government to Singaporean levels, uh, that might seem horrific. But by, by comparisons, the levels of, if, if Americans had Singaporean schools and Singaporean hospitals, they would, certainly wouldn't be very too um, um, displeased by that. Fundamentally, what, a lot of what the new revolution in government has to be about is, is sort of reversing it in a strange way, is to stop thinking about these, you know, it's the same kind of revolution businesses have been through. Stop thinking about what the producers do or what they have and start thinking about the consumers of those services. You know, if you look at education, do we have the, we still have an education timetable set by the agrarian calendar? We still work, our, American children have these lengthy summer holidays purely because in the theory they're going to go and work on the harvest. Does that remotely make sense? Do you know a business which would even dream of doing that? And it's not just a silly way to operate. It, it's actually, it destroys learning because children, as any person would, if you give people a three-month break, they tend to forget a lot in the course of that. So you then have to spend the first bit re-educating them. In terms of, you know, what time do you teach people do you have after school, preschool? You know, again, every single piece of evidence shows that if you want to educate children, you need to start doing it quite early. And that's these are all things where, where in a sense, people shoot themselves in the foot. And and the question really is where where is the prompt to get things moving ahead quicker? Where are we in the United States training such people? I mean, in, in China, they train they're training people to provide better government. They do the same thing more or less in, in France, as I understand it. But the America, how do we do it? Is it the school of America, Kennedy America, School of Government? Or well, the, you know, it, is, it is to some extent. America, America is a mixture. America has one thing which is quite healthy, which is a, a slight skepticism about government, which in some ways is a good thing. Um, you know, you, you can meet some people who say, really, I don't want government to get any more efficient because that's exactly what I fear. And when it, when it comes to things like wiretapping your phone and things, you might think that's a good thing. But in general, you would like it to be a lot more efficient than it is currently, even on the routine things like interaction with it, trying to get things from it. You know, anyone who's sat down and tried to fill out tax forms and things knows what I'm talking about. Fundamentally, America does have this, it has a healthy skepticism about government, but that does mean in various bits, take you look at diplomacy, are, the, lack are, of, the lack of professional civil servants, I think that does cost America a bit. You also make the point that, that uh, no government is not the answer. I mean, I mean the... Uh, it is definitely be, not. Because to live in a failed state or to live in a, in a state of, of anarchy and primitive violence is, is no fun. No, and that is, you know... That, I mean, that, that is, was the first point that... That, uh, that was Thomas Hobbes's point. That was Thomas Hobbes's point, because Europe in the 
16th century was no picnic. Well, yeah, but actually, you know, to, to, on the optimistic side, again, you, you hear all these sighs and you hear people say, you can't do anything. Well, you know, Rudy Giuliani, he may not be everybody's cup of tea and we can argue about who deserves credit for it, whether it's him or Bratton. But the basic fact is that New York, which I remember first visiting before he arrived, was not dissimilar to Thomas Hobbes's um, Leviathan. You were, you were used to a level of crime which most people found unforgivable. It, but just simply by doing vaguely modern things, the sort of things businesses would do, such as you know stopping the zero-tolerance approach towards some things, looking at different ways you could use technology to send policemen to places. These things, whatever you think of Giuliani, had a dramatic effect on the way New York was run. So it is possible to really change things. Or look at Sweden. You know, Sweden was a place where it was swallowing, I think, 67% of GDP was going to government. And they just ran out of money, which is another prompt for the American government to start thinking about doing things more efficiently. The Swedes nearly ran out of money, and then they had to change. And that, that they brought down the size of government to it's now below 50%. It's, it, it's a, and, and yet they do, they've still taken a choices about what they want to provide, what they want to do well. And in some ways, what we need are leaders who could challenge that accepted wisdom. And one of the sad things so far about Trump is that he has at least on, I'm going to imagine very boldly, he at least in, in theory has some of the qualities you might imagine somebody who would change the, the system would need. He comes from the outside. He has some experience of running things outside the um, public sector. He hasn't yet shown the, the uh, appetite to go further on that, but, there, but it's not a completely silly idea. But the people that he has put in, you know, appointed to his cabinet so far, at least, or to, uh, among his effective agents, uh, are not people that, that are trained to government or trained to believe that, that government can be a, a beneficial, um, benevolent uh, agent. Well, there's always a division. This Donald Trump seems to believe that government would be an amazingly benevolent institution when it comes to restraining trade or building yeah. walls so it's, yeah. or, or building up arms. No, no, so but I mean along the lines that you're talking about because the, you, you end the book with the, the clue to making this fourth revolution successful is the revitalizing of democracy. Yes, what do you mean by, by I think democracy? The two, I think the two go hand in hand at the moment. The more lousy government gets, the less seriously people take it, the more they tend to vote in a kind of protest way, and the less they often take part in the voting. And at least part of that, in America, the, the, the structure of government doesn't help you that much on this, but the, the, the fact you've got on the one side, and I'm going to exaggerate, you've got on the left, you've got a group of people who are very, the Democrats, very, very in bed with the public sector unions, most obviously in education, with the teachers' union. That, 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 these are, these are, that is not a satisfactory starting point to start looking at overhauling most of the institutions of government. On the other side, on the Republican side, you've got a frankly rather sort of silly bit which goes on about the fact they want to have no government at all, which, as I pointed out earlier, that, that, is, you know, that, that, is, that is the route to, the, to Congo. You, you, it, things like, for instance, dismantling the State Department, that, that could end up being a much more expensive um, use of American money in terms of what might be later required in terms of armed forces to clear up the problems which better diplomacy might have helped. You, you, there are some bits, you know, government can really get things done. As I've said earlier, healthcare. You can argue that America would end up with a lot cheaper and maybe more efficient system if it did have a single provider. That, that, these, these are all the sort of difficult questions you have to ask. Look at Social Security, look at those sort of issues. 
the, the strange thing about this is on the whole, I was just reading Tom Friedman's book the other day, you know, he has a list of common sense solu solutions to what you do about government at the end. They're not that different from some of the ones we, we say in this book. Most people who've looked at it from any kind of independent the viewpoint tend to pluck some ideas from the right, some ideas from the left. But the underlying idea is, can, how can we get more done with less? And that has to be at least a decent, that's the way you would think about it if you were trying to run a business. It's also actually, I think, necessary to what you're driving at. You know, this is a mixture between, on the one hand, rather a sort of technocratic thing. You, you, there are lots yeah. of things you can make much better. But underneath it, there is a big liberal idea. If, if you don't make government better, one threat comes from places like China, and that's already happening. You know, people around the world are looking at the mess we are making of how we do politics in the West. And they're asking the question, well, look, China seems to be better at making people richer. The loss in so-called um, sort of voting power, what does that matter? Why didn't I look at that? You could argue even Putin and the strongman thing seems more attractive to people. Yeah, so there, so is a, there, is a, there is a threat from that point of view. But more than that, I think it's, it's the desire for people with big ideas to come to it. And this is, I suppose, the site where I should declare my own colours. My, my own ones are, are deeply liberal, I think. You, you, not libertarian, but liberal. Yes, you're a classic liberal. I'm a classic liberal yeah. to the extent that I, you know, I would rather government was as, as small as we can make it so that we can help people, so that so people can go about their own way. But I still want a government that provides health care, that provides education. I actually would think it's a good idea to provide education much later in life than most governments do. You know, We now have people who live much longer. Um, Lewis, you're possibly one of these examples. That we, but I'm, not, I'm not suggesting remedial training for, for, for um, former writers and journalists, but that's, these, are, these, are things that, these are things that many people need. There are a lot of people 50 years old and so who, who, who desperately need some kind of change. But you're talking about, if I understand you correctly, you're, you're talking about democracy in the way it was conceived by say, Thomas Paine or Mill. I mean, it, it, the turn of the early, into the early 19th century, right? Where, where it is a caring uh, form of politics. Yes, and I, it, it's a mixture. I think, I, think I, I believe in more than just a night watchman state, as yes. they used to call it. Um, you know, the, the, and there are certain, certain rights that you need to, to give to people towards things like universal education. I think you know, colleges you can also make arguments about. But there are some things which are plainly many bits of the state have been hijacked by the well-to-do. You, know, you look at something like the mortgage interest deduction. You know, that is something people with million-dollar mortgages should not be picking these things up. This was aimed originally. America spends more money on that deduction than it does on social housing for the poor. That cannot make sense that right. people, people all the way around where we're sitting in Manhattan are deducting money for, for having ever larger and more wonderful houses. And more money is being spent on that than there is on social housing for very poor people. In Britain, to you know, use another example, it, it, I admire and, and like Mick Jagger very much, but he should not get a free bus pass. <laughs> that is, that is, we have these universal benefits without any form of means testing, and the, these are these are things that matter. I shouldn't get a bus pass when I reach that age as but well. The, but democracy, as you understand it, or the classical liberal understands it, is uh, is a spirit, is a turn of mind that that has gone out of favor in, in, in the United States, uh, I think, over the last 20-odd years, uh, on both the left and the right. I, I, I don't think it's a partisan issue at all. 
I think I think there are some structures to do with on on the pure subject of democracy. There are some things, obviously, that make. And here I'm going to please in no way think that I think the European Union is a is a marvel of modern democracy because it self evidently isn't, and it's paying the price for that at the moment. But you know, within America, you can point towards things like gerrymandering, which that cannot make sense under any certain circumstance, and you're bound to produce more polarized politics because of that. And so, the sooner that truly independent commissions are put in charge of things like electoral boundaries, the sooner that gets ahead. I think that there are, there are other simple things to do with procedures within Congress, etc., that could be changed in order to stop some of the the, the, the delays and tactics about that. There are basic sort of things and, and the subject of money politics, which I know is is a difficult one in America. That also is something which seems, by any definition, it's it's taking what the founding fathers well, yes, I thought mean, of, it, it, taking it to extreme levels. So, so there there are obvious things I think wrong with American democracy that we could we could try to fix. But actually, quite a lot of it is linked to this idea of making government work better. That the, the less that government is seen obviously to do things, the more you alienate people. At every level of society, you alienate people at the bottom because they don't get the services they desperately need. You alienate people at the top because they spend half their time trying to avoid paying the taxes that they don't want to do. And in the middle, you have this sort of bulge of people who don't realize that they're taking a vast amount of the services. Um, well, I mean, you know, they should go just towards the poor and are still resentful about it. That's the large percentage of people in the United States who, who don't vote. Yes. That's an, I mean, and that's a loss of faith in, in democracy, I think, or, or the people thinking, what has democracy got to do with me? I mean, they, people who begin to think that the only thing that mount, counts is money. I'm, I, there are interesting ways in which I think you can begin to change that. Um, some places they have things like compulsory voting. I think that's, that's not always a stupid idea. I'm probably against that. People look at referendums on things and with the obvious problems that Brexit brings to that particular debate for, for Britain. You know, I, I'm, I'm again, again, drawing on the experience in California. I'm very skeptical about the use of referendums. I think you're better off trusting to representatives. But you can certainly begin to look you know, quite hard at the structure of democracy in lots of countries. You can look at Italy and say, does it really make sense to have, I think it's th- th- three times as many sort of MPs or representatives than America does for that size of country. You can ask in America whether, again, as I pointed out on gerrymandering, whether that makes sense. You could certainly go through the many levels of local government where you can end up, again, look at California. You have cities like Los Angeles, which are gigantic. And then you have tiny cities, which only have sort of 400 people in. This, the, the, the sort of levels of, the levels of different government look a bit like a sort of painting by a sort of teenager on some hallucinatory some stuff yes, it's not it does not it does not make sense as a, as a way to think and again the, these are this is there is a fundamental difference between the way that these are structured in terms of government and the commercial world and and, and that does give me some reason for hope you know you, you look at what's happening in government they, pretty much we are still in the same model for government that sort of henry ford was it's still about the sort of mass production of things there's no real idea of how to sort of break things down. Um, it's about ever bigger departments. It's about long chains of command, just about everything you, you would name with that particular era. Well, in business, that has been left long behind. And I think we do need something. We, we can draw on the ideas of business with some usefulness. But not on the ideas of uh, 
a monopoly. Uh, no, I think <laughs> I know that's no. Those are, those are deeply worrying, and actually, in yeah. fact, that's you know, these the, you you ask about where government matters. Government matters a lot in terms of breaking up monopoly. Government matters a lot in terms of allowing the freedom to trade. Government, you know, even again in the liberal, not libertarian hat, you know, there, there are lots of forms of basic research that rely heavily on government. So, that, and, and this goes all the way through structure. So, so it's not, it's not necessarily a smaller government. It's, it, it, I think it is a smaller government, but it's certainly one where you would want the resources to go to areas where they're really needed. You know, we, we even silly things like you look at the num- the amount of public assets. And public land that the government owns in pretty much every town in America. You know, a lot of these things actually it doesn't really need. Um, it could either be leased or it could be moved to more sensible places. One could also say it doesn't really need the, the military budget that we have. I would think. I mean, that well, is the military not budget a- is one of those things that you that, that, that in in broad terms, I think America spends too much um, money wastefully, and the Europeans don't spend enough, um, and that 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 is the terrible battle that we find in NATO at the moment where, where both sides to some extent are guilty. The, the American, the, the, the level to which big American sort of programs sweep through, we're now going to get more of them from Donald Trump. Those, those, those are a, a classic example of something that really could be pruned back. But even within the military, that there's a vast amount of things that we haven't even begun to think, you know, why, why do lots of army bases still maintain schools when we don't particularly need them. I, I think the US These are all Ar- questions that you begin to look at. Yeah. <laughs> I think the army is the biggest school in America. Yes. I think, I, I think that the, the common ground here, which is, is you, you know, there is, there is a certain amount, this, this debate is interesting, because I think there's a certain amount of common ground that people from both right and left should embrace. You know, it, it is not in the interest of people from the left to have really lousy education, so make it better. It is not in the interest of people on the right to have to have um, people going sick around the streets, so make make healthcare better. So that the technocratic bit takes you a certain amount. The difficult, thorny question beyond that is then you sort of have to set some vague size of the state in terms of how much of this stuff stuff you want. And that is that is where politics comes in, and that's where there is a genuine debate. I tend to be someone who's who's from the side of of trying to keep us the state as small as you rationally can i would argue that and there'll be other people who think it should do more but but at least start from the premise that you want it to do things better the 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 madness of democratic politicians democrat politicians in america standing up to defend lousy schools which are above all are hitting poor americans worse than anywhere else purely because of the hold that the teachers unions have that that is that is a horrible horrible thing and americans will america's paying for that very very badly well let us try it and end on a, on, on an up note i mean i i read in the in the papers that the dysfunctional government has gotten so obvious and so apparent and and becomes with the election of of, of trump and the chaotic uh, possibilities that, that we now have the, probably the best chance in two generations to revive and remake um, our politics, uh, to to find the uh, phoenix in the ashes. And, and would you say that the signs of protest and the, you know, suddenly the political arguments become real since, uh, I mean, there, there seems to me to be a more 
people paying attention and, and being understanding the consequences of politics since the election of Trump. There, there is a kind of analogy in some ways. If you look at, you could argue for a long time, and I think it's probably still largely true, that California was America's most dysfunctional government. You then had the election of Schwarzenegger, which you elected a Hollywood actor. And that was a sort of, there was something cathartic about that, the recall, Gray Davis, all that sort of thing together. Schwarzenegger was an uneven governor, but at least he started a process of Californians beginning to think about government when they hadn't done for a very long time. And you've now got quite decent ballot initiatives have done sort of sensible things to reform California government. Jerry Brown's done stuff. There is an element whereby you can get some degree of concentration. You know, with with Trump, I think that the for better on both sides of the aisle, you know, he presents a challenge. This is this is whatever this was. This was not conventional American politics working as it should do. So that therefore we have the strongest country in the world with by far the best private sector. This this at least is opening up the really big question of surely we can we have to do something about government. We have to look at things to do with our democracy. And the lesson of history, and this I think is the, there is a lot of history in this book, the lesson of history is that when countries feel as if they're being competed against, America now feels as if it's being competed against by China, when countries feel are in the midst of a technological revolution, nobody thinks that isn't happening in America at the moment. And when there is a will to change government, something eventually happens. Things begin to to push their way to the top, just purely because for no other reason that if things don't happen, there is no choice. And Uh and that, that I think... And the last reason why I think it will happen is because look around the world. You know, if you if you just took small slices of what is happening in different places, in many places, again, I'm focusing on America, and please, despite my accent, you, know, you should not take this as a, any kind of validation of the British system. But merely if the bad bits of the American government were brought up to somewhere below the median level of most other places, that would have the most dramatic effect when it comes to things like health and education on what 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 the, what government is actually doing because there is something wrong about american people paying for one set of government and then going off to pay for another set of services that government was meant to supply in the first place and and and, and that i think is it, it is about more than just technocracy it is fundamentally about coming up with ways to prove that democracy can work because there is another model out there now. There is there is Putin, there is China. There are places which are less democratic than us who at least claim that they're delivering a better product to their citizens, especially China. And that is something which I think is a challenge to America, and America either deals with it or it doesn't. Well, on that proposition, we come to the end. Of the, uh, thank you very much, uh, John Micklethwaite, for talking to us today about the fourth revolution and the global race to invent the state. It's uh, the book presents the challenge, and, and it, it it makes for a much more, uh, at least from my point of view, a, a more uh, accomplished reading of the papers. Thank you very much. <laughs> Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than thirty percent off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.